This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In preparation for the 4th of July holiday, we head to Washington, D.C., and the U.S. Botanic Gardens there. This summer, the gardens have two intriguing indoor exhibits to complement the gardens themselves. One exhibit, Botanical Art Worldwide, America's Flora, celebrates native plants of North America and features 46 botanical illustrations. The second exhibit, Wallflowers Botanical Murals, showcases six large-scale murals measuring as large as 16 feet tall, all celebrating plants. Plants in these murals communicate the aesthetic, ecological, and historic importance of plants in the urban environment. This exhibit features large-scale art by local artists who specialize in public murals that beautify our cities. Their murals depict plants using bold colors and monumental scale. The exhibit fosters creative conversations about our botanical art and new ways to communicate the important roles plants play in our lives. We're joined today via Skype by Devin Dotson, exhibits specialist at the U.S. Botanic Garden, and artist Nikisha Durrett, whose work appears in the Wallflowers exhibit, to hear more about the exhibits and the journey of the work. Welcome, Devin and Nikisha. Hi, thanks. Thank you. It's great to be here. Devin, I'd like to start with you and giving us a little bit of background history on exhibits of this nature at the U.S. Botanic Garden and your work with them specifically. What is your title and what do you do at the Botanic Garden? My title is Public Affairs and Exhibit Specialist here for the United States Botanic Garden in Washington, D.C. I help kind of oversee our exhibits process. For us, this Wallflowers Botanic Murals exhibit is exciting and a little different. We have in the past had botanical art exhibits in various kind of iterations, but we've never quite had one that really was so focused on not as traditional botanical art presentation, focused on a little bit more modern interpretations of art. This was kind of a new a new direction for us, and it made sense because we knew we were hosting a botanical art, very traditional exhibit this year, and we wanted to really spotlight a spectrum of different ways that plants can be incorporated and kind of storytelling around plants in art and kind of contrast a little more traditional scientific botanical illustration with something that's kind of quite the opposite, very large scale, very graphic and uh, very modern. The exhibit opened January 31st and it runs through October 15th. We're talking about it specifically in relationship to sort of a 4th of July celebration and this way in which botanic gardens, plants, plant knowledge can be shared and celebrated as part of our cultural history over time and space. Describe a little bit the history of the botanic garden having exhibits of this nature at all, because it hasn't always been part of a botanic garden's mission or programming to incorporate this kind of material. Yeah, the U.S. Botanic Garden is almost 200 years old. We were founded by Congress in 1820. And the cool part about kind of thinking about our history around the 4th of July is that we have letters from three different founding fathers when they were thinking about creating this new federal city in Washington, D.C. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, all three wrote letters saying they wanted a botanic garden incorporated into this new federal city. Hmm. Um, and, And from the very beginning, our mission has been and still continues to be today to connect people with plants, talk about their beauty, talk about the importance We talk a lot about economic plants, things that are either foods we eat or medicines that we get from plants or different things like that. And so from the beginning all the way to today, we find ways to really help connect humans with plants. And I think for us, that's why this exhibit was both exciting and it made sense, is that this is another way for us to make that connection, to say, hey, we want to meet you where you are. Whether you're looking for something that's traditional as far as botanic illustration, or maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and you might be more captivated by something that's large and vibrant and very modern, come check out kind of some different ways to think about and interact with plants through art. Botanical illustration is such a traditional 
art form and way of expressing both plant knowledge and plant appreciation. It, of course, is historically one of the ways we learn about plants. It's a way of identifying parts and describing morphology. It gives very specific anatomical information. Talk a little bit about the history of botanical art in its most traditional sense, going hand in hand with the work of a botanic garden. Just to give a little context against which we then can kind of compare and contrast the really compelling nature of this new exhibit. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, botanical art has been so integral into storytelling and science around plants for centuries. It's still used today to really help when new species are discovered to describe what's different and to really illustrate those important scientific pieces of information about the plants. Um, and it's it's really about studying the plants and understanding the plant itself and then conveying that through a visual medium of here's the plant in all of its different essences, whether that's something that's really unique and interesting about its pollen or, you know, who, who knows what kind of what's the, the various pieces. And so kind of traditional botanical illustration comes with a really rich history of, of scientific exploration and kind of finding plants that had not been known to be different or kind of known to be growing a specific place or something and sharing that outward both with science and then on that word to, to other people. And I think for us, you know, that, that makes sense that botanic gardens have been part of that process, helping grow plants, display them, making them available for research and also making them available for people working on botanic illustration. Mm -hmm. um, they've been doing that for a long time. And so kind of through through our history, right, people coming in and helping illustrate plants has something that's always kind of been done, sometimes more formally and sometimes informally. And so having but traditional botanic illustration is something we've done off and on through the years, having different exhibits and displays. Um, and I think the the idea of kind of jumping to the opposite end of the spectrum and saying, Let's look a little less focused on the scientific side, but more on the human connectivity side, the human storytelling side. Yeah. Um, makes sense as, as an alternate way for us to do that same human connection with plants. One of the things that I find really fascinating about this is the importance of botanical illustration, especially being developed and respected for centuries before photographic microscopic information was available allowed people to see more than they would have been able to see every single kind of plant part. It is this tool of learning. And the same can be said just on a different, a more cultural level about the wallflowers murals, the way I am seeing them and interpreting them, is that they have these other layers of information that we wouldn't otherwise see if we weren't being asked to look at it in a slightly different way through this artwork. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the beauty of combining art with plants is that, you know, we already provide living specimens of plants for people to immerse themselves in. People connect in, with the world in different ways. And so for some people, it might be that vibrant artwork might grab their attention in a different way than a plant might. Mm -hmm. And it might be, you know, I think the beauty of, of really oversized art, this kind of bigger, bigger than life art, is that a plant that might not be that big in life can be oversized and blown up, you know, 10 times or 50 times. And all of a sudden it can capture your attention in a different way than that living plant would. The current botanical illustration, the traditional botanical illustration exhibit at the garden, what is its title and how, what are the dates of that exhibit? Right now, our other exhibit that's on display is Botanical Art Worldwide, America's Flora. Uh, it also runs through October 15th. It just opened two weeks ago. And, and it's a cool exhibit because it's part of a worldwide exhibit where 25 countries on six different continents are all having one museum or botanic garden space that has a juried show showcasing botanical art of plants native to that specific country. And so that we are the U.S. host for um, this worldwide exhibit. And we're sharing all about um, native plants throughout the United States. And so we've got some from all 50 states that are covered uh, in the exhibit there. And as you said, it's really focused on sharing the exactness of the plant, mm -hmm. um, exactly how it grows or blooms or the seed process or, or even showing it in, in multiple states, um, which, you know, clearly with a single plant, that's very unusual to be able to see it both in flower 
and in fruit. And if it's a deciduous plant, you know, how it looks in the winter and botanical illustration um, can do that. And so that exhibit is running concurrently with the Wallflowers Botanical Murals. If you know this information offhand, Devin, what is the what is the largest piece of work in the traditional botanic illustration exhibit? I think the largest piece of art we have in the traditional botanical illustration exhibit is at most about three and a half to four um, feet tall. Mm-hmm. And that's that's very kind of more on the unusual side. Mm-hmm. I think we only have we only have maybe two or three that are that large, right. and the rest are a, a bit smaller, more more probably in the one and a half to to two and a half foot range. And how many individual pieces are in the exhibit? The Botanical Art Worldwide America's Flora exhibit has forty six pieces of art in that exhibit. So then we contrast that with the Wallflowers exhibit, and this is an exhibit of six pieces, all large-scale murals measuring anywhere from 8 to 16 feet high, tall. I think it may be the the smallest is 5 feet um, wide and then 16 feet tall. Who conceived the idea for the exhibit? Who curated the exhibit? And how did you find and choose artists to represent here? Our exhibit designer, Teresa Dahlman, when we're thinking about the year and we knew we were already going to have this U.S.-based traditional botanic illustration exhibit, we were really already trying to think about us showcasing um, different spectrums throughout the year. We, we also have a, a very large orchid show that occurred earlier this year, February through April. And that show we had already settled on trying to show a wide spectrum in the diversity of orchids, um, both in color and in size and shape and where they grow. And so we like, what if we apply that same idea to botanical art and going kind of from the very traditional to maybe the much more modern and not traditional. And so she came up with this idea. I think everyone here at the garden really loved that idea of kind of reaching out to an even wider audience and and casting a wider net. And so um, she did some research and was really looking at people who are doing murals and other type of modern art that incorporates plants. So we used the opportunity for the exhibit to reach out to the artist and say, hey, this is our idea. Would you be interested? And it was so fun because I think the artists maybe didn't expect the call. We received great excitement and feedback from the artist and, and that they really were interested in creating a piece to be to be part of this. From the beginning, we just said, here's the general outline that we want to showcase plants through art in a kind of a modern way and, and left that style and, and choices of plants and storytelling left that up to the artists for them to, to come back to us with their ideas. And I think it was a really cool process because it was very wide open that they each could come back with different plants that had a meaning to them or had a story in their mind. The total selection when seen all together is so, it's arresting. It is, it is colorful, it is vivid, it is full of detail, and is full of narrative, especially I think the more you, even without the interpretive material, it is full of narrative. I think I will turn now to speak with one of the artists represented in the exhibit, uh, Nikisha Durrett. Thank you so much for the information so far, Devin. Thanks. Nikisha Durrett, welcome to the program. I'm very honored to have you today and to speak more about your artwork. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So give me a little bit of background on your history as an artist. I am an artist who lives and works in Washington, D.C. I'm an artist and a teacher. And over the last decade or so, for the most part, my work lives in public spaces. I'm very much interested in the layers of meaning that objects can hold and mining those interpretations and bringing to the fore imagery uh, and or figuration that is largely unseen. Mm. Do you frequently work with plants as a as an either symbolically in your artwork or literally in your artwork, as is the case with this piece? Actually, this is my first foray into using natural uh, materials to make my work. And prior to 
making the piece of the botanic gardens, I was largely working two dimensionally. Mm-hmm. In doing this piece, I have started to kind of reevaluate my practice. I am currently working on a couple of pieces that do either reference the natural world or are using uh, materials from the natural world. Nikisha, describe for us when you first got the call to participate in this exhibit, knowing that it had to or would be best served by incorporating natural materials or plant references, perhaps. How did you come up with the concept for what it became? As Devin said, I was surprised to get <laughs> to get a call asking me to, to reference botanics in my work. I was kind of given, like, that was pretty much what was said. It was just, we want you to create a large-scale piece, and it must reference botanics in some way. That was the only direction, which, for an artist, is kind of liberating. It was never posed that I create a piece actually using plant materials. It wasn't until I started doing research... And so it, the the path kind of meandered in that direction that I felt that I could have the the strongest impact if I were to use the actual material that I was referencing. So for one thing, I, I should just say that I sort of I have a, a brown thumb and have historically just sort of been disconnected from the natural world. The first thing that I thought of was an episode on, I can't remember which NPR show it was. It centered around the book, The Secret Life of Plants by Peter Thompson, Christopher Bird. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is so out there. And it just made me sort of think of the natural world in a different way. To think of plants as having kind of a social world to me it was just so such it was so radical so that was kind of where where I started just this curiosity around this life of plants so I kind of revisited that and I was reading summaries of research by scientists like Jagadish Chandra Bose so the secret life of plants compiled these controversial experiments that revealed plants as these sentient beings Mm -hmm. and that they could experience pleasure and pain. And to me, that was, you know, just a really radical idea. And there were also these summaries of the works of scientists like Jagadish Chandra Bose and George Washington Carver. And then after kind of exploring that, that kind of led me to a contemporary book by Peter Wallabin, the, head, the Hidden Life of Trees. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he, you know, again, is describing forests as this sort of social network that trees are able to to kind of communicate with one another and not only communicate with one another, but to take care of one another. And he talks about like sad plants and he talks about the saddest plants being ones that are, quote unquote, enslaved in our agricultural systems and that isolated trees live uh, shorter lives. And all of this was just so fascinating to me. And I just further like and kind of brought me into the natural world and felt a little more connected. And I did some research on George Washington Carver and learned that he had this spiritual connection with plants and with nature. I recall reading that he would keep a flower in his pocket and throughout the day he would kind of talk to this flower. Hmm. Knowing that and knowing that Carver was born into slavery started to kind of get me to to think about think about slaves communing with the the natural world and like and what would be said. Also around the time um, when I was doing this research, this story broke about a university dinner at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And the university president invited the Black Student Union to his house for dinner. And when the Black students showed up, they were appalled to find that on the menu were collard greens and spare ribs and that decorating the, the tabletops were these centerpieces made of cotton stalks. Hmm. And 
so they were <laughs> outraged by this, obviously, and so they took to social media and you know posted pictures and of these cotton stalks. And the university president then apologized and said that he didn't mean any harm by it and that he had just had the same meal at his mother-in-law's birthday party the week before. He said that he said that he could kind of see a little bit why they would be offended. But for me, and I think and for those students, I think it was clear that it wasn't his intent to be insulting, but what it did reveal was this this huge cultural divide in which on one hand you have a cotton as this symbol cotton represents a pain trauma suffering and then to others it's a symbol of nostalgia purity and beauty mm. so i was very interested in bringing to the foreground these two divergent interpretations. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Devin Dotson, exhibits specialist at the U.S. Botanic Garden in Washington, D.C., and Nikisha Durrett, a mural artist whose work is represented in a current exhibit at the gardens entitled Wallflowers. Nikisha's large-scale piece in the exhibit is entitled, Then I Wished I Could Come Back as a Flower. The exhibit as a whole explores the cultural narratives held and carried forward in plants. These perspectives can be wildly different based on a viewer's perspective and history. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, it's me, Jennifer. Sometimes I send out an inquiry about a potential episode and think it's going to be one thing. And then when we get into it, it's really different. Sometimes, I'll be honest, I have to scramble to keep up. Other times, I have to just shut up and listen. Really listen. Today I had to practice listening. Not jumping in to fix, cover over, explain. Just listen. I wasn't perfect, but I practiced. And in listening more gently and openly, we learn. I learned more about Hagadish Chandra Bose, the Bengali plant and radio scientist, and I learned more about George Washington Carver. In her interpretive sign for her piece, Then I Wished I Could Come Back as a Flower, Nikisha cites this about Carver, the noted African-American botanist. Quote, he was born into slavery and went on to revolutionize agriculture through his research and teaching in crop rotations, alternative cash crops, soil health, and agricultural products. Carver believed there was much to be learned by listening to nature. He wrote, more and more, as we come closer in touch with nature and its teachings, are we able to see the divine and are therefore fitted to interpret correctly the various languages spoken by all forms of nature about us." End quote. It's in the listening that we hear. Now, back to our conversation with artists Nikisha Durrett and Devin Dotson from the U.S. Botanic Gardens in Washington, D.C. For listeners who maybe have not had a chance to see a representation of this work, and, and one of the reasons that I was drawn by this work was it's the only one of the murals in the exhibit that actually incorporates plant material. Um, it also incorporates words. So for listeners, Nikisha, describe the what the actual piece looks like, its size and um, the words that you read in the piece? The piece is 16 feet tall by 8 feet wide. It is composed of uh, cotton bowls, Spanish moss, eucalyptus, cedar cones, and burlap. Those are the those are the materials that are that are visible. Um, underneath those materials is a um, is a substrate of um, polyurethane foam, and that's sort of what holds everything together. Mm -hmm. And all of these materials are 
pinned to the um, to the styrofoam backing with boutonniere pins mm. or corsage pins. Um, so uh, my intention was to um, was to borrow from the aesthetics of Southern style weddings. I did an image search on Google, and tons of examples came up where raw cotton is used in the South for lapels, for bouquets, for centerpieces. I even came across a, a sign. It had a, an arrow pointing to the wedding reception that said, have a cotton pick and good time. So I'm literally like I would just, you know, print out these images of these bouquets and I would just kind of just borrow from exactly what I saw. So what you're seeing there is very much what these wedding bouquets look like. And that's kind of where I saw predominantly the cotton used for decoration was a lot of times at it mostly at weddings, mm-hmm. weddings, weddings between white people. Mm hmm. Never, I never saw uh, an example of a, a southern wedding between two black people where cotton was used as a decorative feature. Mm-hmm. And so, when you look at when you look at it from a distance, the uh, entire background is the white cotton bowls covering the the, the ground backing of the piece, and then. Uh, you have used the Spanish moss to create um, words, and it's they're formed very beautifully. I'm not sure what font it is, but it's lovely. And it says, running down the entire length of this large space, then I wished that I could come back as a flower. And punctuating both the cotton backdrop and these words crafted out of the Spanish moss. You have lotus pods, you have eucalyptus sprigs, you have cedar cones, and you have little burlap kind of ribbons like you might see on a boutonniere or some other floral arrangement. Talk about the symbology behind the other plant choices here, and then talk about the words, Nikisha. Yes. So the text, Then I Wished I Could Come Back as a Flower, comes from um, a Stevie Wonder song, which is featured on the soundtrack to the film version of The Secret Life of Plants. So when I was doing this research, I then discovered that there actually was a film that was mostly composed of time-lapse video or time-lapse film of flowers budding, vines kind of creeping and crawling, mushrooms kind of magically sprouting up overnight. Mm. And the whole film is scored by Stevie Wonder. The producers of the film at the time, I think it was 1974, tapped Stevie Wonder, who was one of the hottest artists at the time because he had just released um, Songs in the Key of Life, which was a huge culturally significant and impactful album so they thought ah we'll get stevie wonder to do it and so he created this album which to say the least didn't live up to the songs in the key of life and it pretty much was panned by by critics so it's not a great album i love stevie wonder but this is not like (laughs) this is not a great album it's not (laughs) something i'm going to be jamming to but there's a song on the album that's called come back as a flower And it's not Stevie Wonder singing the song. It's actually a woman who I think shortly after this would become his wife. I think they were briefly married, but she's actually singing the song. And, you know, she's saying, then I wished I could come back as a flower. And it's someone just kind of walking through a garden, contemplating life and death and reincarnation and I just thought, wow, okay, this is it. Somehow I have to incorporate this text. And then, you know, thinking about this cotton plant, think, thinking about the cotton plant as this empathetic being, you know, what would a cotton plant say to a slave if the cotton plant had this awareness? Hmm. And, you know, I just kind of thought, the cotton plant would probably wish that it was just a flower, but it's not just a flower. 
it has this this horrific history tied to it and is you know kind of at the root of this legacy of suffering and the institution of slavery in this country mm-hmm. the spanish moss was chosen again uh, much like the other the other materials because it is something that is heavily featured in these southern weddings i've seen some images where it's actually kind of hanging from from tabletops or somehow hanging from doors or it's in a bouquet. And when I think of Spanish moss, I think of sort of like, I, I visualize, well, there was, um, there was one thing that I, that I came across. It was the, the director of the film, 12 years a slave mm-hmm. who talked about scouting locations for the plantation scenes in the film and that they actually went to this authentic plantation in Louisiana and there was this huge oak tree that had the Spanish moss hanging down and he said he knew that this was that this was it that this was this was the location this is where they had to film the whipping scenes and that's something that I always you know, I associate Spanish moss with that. When other other people see Spanish moss and it's like this beautiful thing and, and I can recognize the, the beauty in it, but but also it brings up this sort of imagery for me. Mm-hmm. I imagine it like hanging from trees, like bodies hanging from trees, mm-hmm. strange fruit hanging from trees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The lotus and the eucalyptus? The lotus and the eucalyptus, I love the smell of eucalyptus. I had never been surrounded by so much cotton in my life, but in working with it uh, kind of tirelessly for months, I realized that it smells really good. It has this really great smell. And the smell of the eucalyptus and the cotton, oh my gosh, my studio just smelled amazing for <laughs> <laughs> for a long time. It uh, doesn't anymore. But <laughs> so I kind of wanted to also deal with um, not just the material, like I, you know, I wanted people to want to touch it, but I also wanted it to kind of leap off the wall. Like I wanted it to, I wanted it to have a smell and I just, I felt like smell is just this powerful sense that I felt like maybe the next time someone smells eucalyptus or smells cotton, they'll think of this piece. As far as the lotus, lotus was something that I saw in these bouquets. And also around the time that I was working on the piece um, and I was selecting materials, I was kind of seeing lotus around everywhere, and it was uh, it was used in these posters for the series, the television series American Horror Story. Mm. And and so there were there were lotus pods, there were beehives. It was anything that had like things from the natural world that had these tiny holes in them. And so these posters were kind of controversial because they were um, triggering people who had this, I want to say it was a, a mental disorder, but they had this condition where when presented with things that had multiple objects that had multiple holes in them, like kind of clusters of holes, mm-hmm. that it would cause them to have these panic attacks. And so these posters had to, I think, well, there was a, there was a push to get these posters removed because a lot of people were being triggered. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a character in the show who has this reaction to things. When you look this up, all of these trigger images come up. And one of the things is a lotus pod. So again, here's this, this object that some people look at as this kind of beautiful thing, beautiful enough to put into a floral arrangement but then for someone else, it, like, it drives them insane. Mm. So I thought that is fascinating. So I, I put them in there, too. I hope it's not a trigger for anyone. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll make a note of that. Um, <laughs> and then finally, you have the cedar cones. Yes, the cedar cones. Um, so all of this, I knew that this piece was going to be up for a year. 
so I had to think of things that that would stand the test of time that would one would be able to transport well to the site and that would that would hold up for the duration of the show and one of the things that I really liked about cedar cones was one that they actually were featured in these bouquets but that they actually look like roses Mm -hmm. which is why they're they're actually called cedar roses because they they look like these roses that are carved out of wood yeah and they're sturdy and they transport well and they're just beautiful objects so I included those as well ultimately I wanted this thing to be kind of to be uh, alluring like I wanted it to to be beautiful but then underneath there is this ugliness Um, and I so I I like that tension I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're preparing for the 4th of July holiday with a visit to the U.S. Botanic Garden in Washington, D.C. Besides the renowned plant collection, the gardens regularly host exhibits related to horticulture and the importance of plant life to us all in a diversity of ways. Artist Nikisha Durrett's large-scale piece, Then I Wished I Could Come Back as a Flower, explores the complex history of cotton in the United States and the ongoing complexity of our relationships and associations with it as a culture. Stay with us. It's me again, hoping your solstice season is a lovely one. With the 4th of July holiday upon us, it can be easy to be caught up in extremes, extreme patriotism, extreme critique, extreme judgment. As my garden and trail time teaches me daily, it's our diversity that makes us strong. And every individual and communal role has a valuable role to play for the vigor and vibrancy and strength of the whole. As you'll hear Nikisha say toward the end of our conversation, I'm really proud of the work of our U.S. Botanic Gardens and the role of public gardens everywhere bringing people together around plants. Because as you know, I believe, it all comes back to plants, people. I hope you get out and enjoy some plants for yourself this early summer season. And how did your contemplative pollinator count in the garden go from last week? Send me an update if you can. I've been loving the ones I've gotten. Thank you to everyone who wrote in with their experiences. And definitely make sure to check out CultivatingPlace.com this week. The episode notes and photos and a view from here, the monthly newsletter, a new one goes out soon. You don't want to miss it. And I don't want to miss connecting with you. Now, back to our conversation with Nikisha Durrett and Devin Dotson of the U.S. Botanic Gardens in D.C. The overall effect is... One very textural, so I'll be interested to see it in person and see if I get that fragrance from it that you were describing. And it is beautiful, especially in the details of it. When you get closer to it and you can see the rosettes of the little cedar cones, the way that it's positioned in the gallery because of its size, it is quite high off the ground. So I'm imagining people can't touch it, but that they get that textural impact of the eucalyptus sprigs kind of coming up off of the surface of the piece. How long did it take you to make this? Wow. Um, well, I, I would say that it took probably a, a year from, from, from the conceptual process through production to hanging it up on the wall. I would say it took about a year. Mm-hmm. It took me about, let's say, it took me about three months to actually create it, to actually stick all of the right. the cotton and all of the elements on and all of that. And there also was not only the, the research that was involved um, in, in researching the subject matter and the materials, but also how I have a very small studio. So how do I create this <laughs> ginormous piece yeah. in this tiny studio? Um, so I worked with a framer to um, to kind of engineer um, a way that I could work on the piece in um, four by four foot sections. 
um, that would fit comfortably on my studio wall. Yes. And then they're all put together to create the bigger piece. And then they're, yes, and then they're all put together. And so there was a, there was some installation, um, some, you know, application of the cotton that had to happen on site. Some of the letters had to go on, on site because this thing all had to kind of fit together and then um, the seams had to disappear. What has been the feedback that you have received from people about the piece, Nikisha? The, the feedback has been pretty good. I uh, actually had an opportunity to go down. I like when I have work installed, I like to kind of go down and be incognito and just <laughs> watch people interact. <laughs> yeah. So, Devin, when you look back at the process of finding your artists, watching their pieces come together, watching them be installed, and the response to the exhibit as a whole to this point, what are you most impressed by and what are you most proud of in this exhibit? We at the Garden are, I think, really excited to to see people interacting with the art in the, in the gallery space to really... I think it, it is captivating. They kind of walk through the, the doors into the gallery. And because the pieces are so large and so vibrant, it, it does capture their attention. And it's fun to be in the space, as kind of Nikisha mentioned, and just kind of watch how people interact because they are drawn to the pieces. They'll go really, they'll, they'll kind of stand halfway in the room and look at them. And then they almost always go to see things really close. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the great pieces about really large art is that you have different perspectives and you see different things at different levels. And people are really interacting with them, both both kind of taking the time to look at the pieces, they're talking with their groups about them. They're, they're almost always taking photos with the pieces, either of the pieces by themselves or themselves with the, the mural or the art in the background. And I think for us, that's kind of interesting to see people wanting to pose with art I think that that's, that's a different level of engagement that we were excited to see people wanting to do that, that it's not just that they're coming to see beautiful plants and flowers, but they're also engaging with this art. And that was exactly our hope, is that this would be something that would kind of captivate and, and enrich their experience while they were at the Botanic Garden. Has it, one final question, Devin, do you feel as though this exhibit has drawn in an audience that is different in its demographic or its interests than your standard exhibits at the Botanic Garden? We're definitely seeing a, um, a, a really wide range of demographics engaging with this exhibit. Mm-hmm. We tend to be one of the most visited public gardens in the entire U.S., usually bringing in well over a million visitors each year. And so for us to be able to present a spectrum of botanical art from very traditional to kind of much more modern and, and not expected like this um, murals exhibit, we really were hoping that to captivate and engage with a, a different demographic, maybe a younger demographic or, or a little different background and, and give kind of everyone across the board something to engage with on their experience at their visit at the Botanic Garden. And, and it looks like we're getting there because I'm loving being in the space and seeing that everyone from 80-year-old visitors who might have come thinking they were just going to see maybe some beautiful flowers to maybe not as traditionally easy to engage with in a botanic garden space like a teenager or a young adult in their in their 20s or something who are taking the time to actually look at this art and and are taking photos of it taking photos with it and so for me that's pretty exciting to see that we are captivating them and grabbing their attention Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, Devin, and I'm really excited about this exhibit and all the work the U.S. Botanic Garden does. Thank you so much. Nikisha, I think you indicated early in the the description of this process for you that it brought you into kind of relationship with plants and the natural world in a way that you hadn't been before and has made you reevaluate a little bit your your work and your your palette. Were you a visitor to the U.S. Botanic Garden prior to this uh, work on your behalf, on your part? Rather? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, I've probably been, been visiting the Botanic Garden since I was a small kid, since I grew up in D.C. And, um, and now as a as a teacher, I take my students there yeah. um, quite a bit. And actually, we have a field trip scheduled um, next week to the Botanic Gardens because we usually do one trip um, every year to the Botanic Gardens. And uh, 
And this year it's extra special because I kept this piece up there. So that'll be cool. That'll be so um, fun for your students yeah. to see this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What grade, yeah. what age level are you teaching? They're high school, ninth through 12. Yeah. And do they know that your piece is there? Have they learned about the process you've been through with this? No, there are a couple of them who have been curious enough to kind of go on my website and see the piece and ask about it. One of my students was down there. He knew about the piece, so he took a bunch of kids over to the <laughs> over to the botanic gardens, and they and they had a chance to see it. And so it's an arts high school, so kids are very much interested in you know they it's something they would have been interested in. So he took them over there to see it. But other than that, here and there, I've had a few kids come up to me like, "Oh, it's down at the botanic gardens, and I saw the piece." So that's cool. And people send me pictures. I've gotten a lot of feedback just from social media. People kind of sharing their thoughts on the piece and posting pictures of their kids interacting with the piece, which is really moving. Yeah. Um, and uh, one thing you, you did talk about was the height of the piece. And that was something that we talked about a little bit when plotting the installation. It's just like, how low should it go? And I kind of, I, I love the idea of people touching it and interacting with it people are pretty respectful of of art and spaces and they kind of are just will kind of be kind of gentle with it and just touch it a little bit even kids Mm -hmm. yeah and so when you look back over this process what what do you come away with as the the either the the concept or the impact, what are you most proud of in the way this piece turned out? Well, I am, I'm pretty proud that I was able to, this is the largest piece I've ever worked on inside of my studio. I'm used to doing large scale works, but they're, they're always done kind of offsite. All the planning happens in the studio, in my computer, and then it's not until I'm on site when I actually see it kind of come together. I'm pretty proud of the fact that I was able to pull off something of this scale in my tiny studio. I'm proud that I was able to kind of make all of these all of these connections, yeah. um, kind of illuminating the power that objects hold. Yeah, I'm proud that that I was able to kind of pull off this kind of thing in, in a space like the botanic gardens. Like I, I just, I, I thought all the while when I was like, I was kind of shy about telling them what I was doing because I thought they would be like, Oh, we think this might, this might be a little too for our demographic. This might be a little too edgy or, and so I kind of like, I feel like I, I wasn't really, I wasn't secretive about it, but I wasn't like completely forthcoming with, with all of the ideas that I was trying to convey. Mm-hmm. So I'm proud of myself for holding to my ideas. And I'm also really proud of the botanic gardens as well for, because never once did they, did they question at all or think that it might be, because there's a very, people from all walks of life come to the botanic gardens and there could be some people who visit who aren't ready to think about these materials in that way. But the Botanic Gardens never, you know, they were more concerned about <laughs> me addressing these these ideas of plants being sentient, yeah. uh, which I thought was so funny. They were like, they came to me and they were like, we have a we have kind of a problem with your artist statement. I was like, oh, no, here we go. And then they were like, they were like, this whole idea that plants can think, you know, that's not really accepted in the scientific community, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's it? Okay, yeah, all right. <laughs> I can handle that. Well, it's a very powerful piece, and I, too, am very proud that our U.S. Botanic Garden has something as richly narrative and expansive as this exhibit up during this coming summer. So I really I am very honored to speak with you, and uh, I look forward to following your, your work. Nikisha, thank you for being a guest. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been so much fun. Thank you.
Devin Dotson is an exhibit specialist at the U.S. Botanic Gardens in Washington, D.C. Nikisha Durrett is an artist whose piece, Then I Wished I Could Come Back as a Flower, is one of six large-scale works of botanical art in a summer exhibit entitled Wallflowers. Both the Wallflowers and the Botanical Art Worldwide America's Flora exhibits run through October 15th. Throughout the exhibit runs, the U.S. Botanic Garden will offer programs, workshops, lectures, and tours related to the exhibits, including opportunities to meet the artists, watch as artists paint large murals, and even participate in painting a new mural. The U.S. Botanic Garden is open to the public free of charge every day of the year from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. For more information on the exhibits, please visit cultivatingplace.com for this week's episode notes. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways that people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To read more about the U.S. Botanic Gardens, the Wallflowers exhibit, or the work of Nikisha Durrett, including many beautiful photos, head over to cultivatingplace.com. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Make beauty wherever I go. Make beauty. Make beauty wherever I go. Wherever I go, make beauty, make beauty, wherever I go.